want to encourage us now to turn in the book of 1 Peter. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, a book that addresses suffering. Suffering for the name of Christ, the willingness to sacrifice of oneself, the willingness to die for the name of Christ. And now he comes to a section of the text in chapter 5 in which Peter encourages those who are elders, those who are elders as a fellow elder in the suffering of Christ to be faithful. And he encourages them and exhorts them in a number of duties that they are to have, that they are to be mindful of in 1 Peter chapter 5. And our reading will come from verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. The text in 1 Peter 5, verse 1 through 4, reads, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's bow in a word of prayer once again before we come to the word. Our Father in heaven, pray, Father, for strength and wisdom and that you would fill us with your spirit that we might understand, illumine our minds, enlighten our eyes. Father, grant to us an understanding, God, of your word, that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In Jesus' name, amen. It's funny, some of the things that people say to pastors after service or after a sermon. Sometimes they're at a loss for words. And Arthur Myers in the Berkshire Sampler writes about some of the things that people will say to their pastors after service. According to one minister's friend who said to him, quote, You always manage to find something to fill up the time. Or, Pastor, I don't care what they say. I like your sermons. Or, if I had known you were going to be good today, I would have brought my neighbor. Did you know that there are 243 panes of glass in this church? You know, we really shouldn't make you preach so often. Quote. Well, sometimes it can be discouraging because there are many needs. Because there are things that you cannot do, that you want to do, things you want to spend time on, things you want to write, ministries you want to begin, subjects you want to address, subjects you want to teach, a multitude of unexpected problems prop up for those who serve in the ministry. Early this morning I received a call. Some of you are familiar with a pastor who has been attending here for the past number of months, Jim and Jim Wells, his wife Sharon, and he told me that it's fine if I shared with you to ask for prayer because he's, she is not doing well. In fact, she's not doing well at all. So he asked for prayer. She's been through over 40 surgeries, and as you know, they have 
served the Lord for over 40 years, ministering to children. That has been their ministry, to serve children as a CE pastor of churches were smaller, larger. I'd be amazed he'd share about how he would have 180 third graders in his class that he was trying to deal with or whatever it might be or how he would have a small group of students that he would be trying to reach in the sports ministry. And sometimes things that are unexpected come up in ministry and they are difficult. And so he would like to ask if you would pray for him and for Sharon. I remember a long time ago when I first took this job and really there was no one else on staff, people would always tell me about the subject of burnout and they would talk about how I would be burnt out. People who didn't even really know me too much would say to my mother, oh no, he's going to get burnt out. Now, honestly, I may have felt that way a few times, but by and large, Burnout has never really been an issue, although I've thought a lot about the subject. And I've come to learn one thing, that if the motivation for ministry is right, your desire is proper, when you're tired, you just take a nap and you're fine. If serving the Lord is not a job, not an obligation, not something that you're pushed into because you have to, but a pleasure, then burnout simply won't be an issue and you can continue to serve and serve and serve Unless, of course, you've overpiled your own schedule somehow or your motivation is not right or your vision is, is clouded, then it might come. But a proper motivation, I've found, flows into a ministry that is fruitful and that bears fruit for the glory of God and allows you to be blessed in the things that you do, the things that you serve, ways that you serve, etc. And you can continue to serve the Lord and enjoy what you're doing when it is not seen as a job. Peter here addresses and exhorts these elders to have the proper motivation for the duties that they're to do because they are facing a difficult time. Remember, he wrote around A.D. 65 or so, around the time when Nero torched Jerusalem, and he writes to these believers that are scattered all across Asia Minor because they were facing extreme difficulties. And here he writes to those that are leading these people because if these people were being persecuted, one might conclude that these leaders would certainly perhaps be discouraged. So he writes to them and he encourages them and he says to them, you know what, these are the things to do. Three particular things that they are to do, three motivations or duties But he comes alongside of them in verse 1 and he first gives them a charge from an elder. A charge from a fellow elder. He says, I exhort you, the elders among you, as your fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He comes alongside of them not in terms of saying, well, I'm an apostle and you're an elder and you listen to me because I was a witness to Christ's suffering. The term elder here is one that is, comes from the word presbyteroi, from which we, we understand from the New Testament it is a position of leadership within the church. <clears throat> there are three terms particularly that are used in the Bible for those in church leadership in the position of an elder. The term elder refers to a, a man's spiritual maturity. 
a man's spiritual maturity. But there are also two other words that are used. That of a bishop or an overseer, referring to their responsibility or their guardianship. And then the term pastor, which is the same as that of a shepherd, expressing the priority of feeding and teaching. So you have elder, which is of their maturity, bishop, which is above their overseer, which is referring to their guardianship or their responsibility, and you have that of a pastor or a shepherd. And they're all used interchangeably in the scriptures, used in the book of Acts sometimes, Acts chapter 14 or Acts 20, in which those terms are used interchangeably as those who would lead the church, elders, were those who led the church. And you notice here in this particular text, it is an address to elders, plural. And in the New Testament, you'll find that the Bible always refers to a plurality of elders, except in the case where it is designating a particular elder, such as the elder John, or how Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder. It is always that he is addressing those as elders of the church, lending credence to the idea that there is to be a plurality of elders within a church. A plurality of leaders. Robert Greenleaf in his book Servant Leadership said, quote, To be a lone chief atop a pyramid is abnormal and corrupting. None of us are perfect by ourselves and all of us need the help and correcting influence of close colleagues. When someone is moved atop a pyramid, that person no longer has colleagues, only subordinates. Even the frankest and bravest of subordinates do not talk with their boss in the same way that they talk with colleagues who are equals. And normal communication patterns are warped, unquote. So one would perhaps conclude that the New Testament pattern for leadership is a plurality of elders, a plurality of godly men who would lead the church. And Peter calls upon them as a witness to the suffering of the, of the Lord Jesus because he witnessed Jesus in the suffering of the Garden of Gethsemane and in his trial before the high priest and the witness of his crucifixion on the cross. And he says to them, I'm not only a, a fellow elder and I'm not only a witness, but I am a partaker with you in glory that is to be revealed. Believers are promised a reward. They're promised a reward of glory that will come in the future. And the glory that is the world has to offer, I say, is often temporary. It is temporary, period. Back in those days when you won in one of the games, or you won as a general, you were victorious, you would receive a crown that was made of a wreath, and that would fade. Even when we talk about glory today, we talk about the glory of sports stars or whoever, you know, all they have to do is stop scoring points and their glory will be gone. All somebody who receives an award will do is that award will be placed upon a mantle or something like that and that glory over time will be forgotten when the next person who wins that record or whatever it is will replace them. But the glory that God brings... It's a glory that will not be forgotten, will not fade. And so we look at the things he says here of the eternal glory that is to come. Richard Baxter writes, quote, To be a pastor, a man must set his heart on the life to come and regard the matters of eternal life above all the affairs of this present life. 
Above the trifles of this world, he must appreciate in some measure the inestimable riches of glory. We think about the things that we do, and I think about the things that I do, and I think about how some of the things that I do, I try to ask myself, what redeeming value does this have? Because the vision must be set on the things to come. And the responsibilities that Peter points out here are threefold. And the duties of an elder. And the first is to shepherd and oversee God's flock. To shepherd and oversee God's flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, it says. The analogy is used of that of a shepherd overseeing God's flock. And it's appropriate to call it God's flock because this is not my church, not so-and-so's church. Or that's the church that belongs to so-and-so. It's not their church, it is God's flock. And he calls it that. But he calls God's people sheep or his flock. It's interesting why he calls him that. Philip Keller, who is a shepherd and an agricultural researcher in East Africa and Canada, writes this. Quote, It's no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not, quote, just take care of themselves. Unquote, as some might suppose, they require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. Unquote. A sheep is very needy, I've read, described in the parable of the lost sheep. A sheep is not like other animals who many of them have an uncanny way of finding their way home after a period of time. If a sheep gets lost, they become disoriented and cannot find their way back home. And a sheep also has difficulty finding food and water if they're left to themselves. And they'll eat both safe and poisonous plants. Sometimes they'll graze themselves such that they'll ruin their own pasture. They need to be led to water and it doesn't matter. Sometimes the water can be pure, sometimes it can be polluted. Their wool, I've read as well, secretes a large volume of oily lanolin that permeates their fleece. So the dust and the dirt come and blow and stick to it. And the grass and the wind-blown debris clings to their fleece. And they can't clean themselves. So they're soiled until the shepherd shears them. But between those shearings of that dirty, sticky accumulation that comes on their wool has to be cut away from underneath their tails. Or they can't eliminate waste and they can become sick and even die. Sheep are naturally passive, virtually defenseless against predators when attacked, and their only hope really is to run. Philip Keller writes this, quote, It reminds me of the behavior of a band of sheep under attack from dogs, cougars, bears, or even wolves. Often, in blind fear or stupid unawareness, they will stand, rooted to the spot, watching their companions being cut to shreds. The predator will pounce upon one and then another of the flock, raking and tearing them with tooth and claw. Meanwhile, the other sheep may act as if they did not even hear or recognize the carnage going on around them. It is as though they were totally oblivious to the peril of their own precarious position. Sheep are very needy. One is attacked and 
They'll just simply stand there. They'll get dirty. They'll eat whatever is put in front of them, whether it's good for them or not. And God likens us to sheep because oftentimes that is us. We are God's flock. And God calls us to be faithful. The first responsibility of a shepherd is to oversee and shepherd the flock of God. It says shepherding the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And the responsibilities of a shepherd are many. One is to protect the sheep, as you know. One is to protect the sheep. And that's the responsibility of an elder or an overseer or a pastor to protect them from divisiveness or people who would be divisive. To stop infighting. The responsibility to correct or admonish that are things, attitudes perhaps, that become cancerous to the church. Gossip that's damaging and disciplining for sin. That's the responsibility. Protect them from themselves. Another responsibility is to feed and to teach the Word of God. To feed and to teach the Word of God. Pastors aren't to be entertainers or famous storytellers or those who would simply make the programs run, but there's the responsibility of feeding or teaching. Because many people fall into vices because of their own lack of knowledge or their own lack of theological understanding or they fall into unbiblical philosophies of ministry because they just listen to anyone or whoever it might be and are undiscerning because they simply don't know. That's why Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.9, which James has gone over, they must hold fast to the faithful word these elders must, which is in accordance with the teaching. Why? So they will be able to both exhort in, which means to encourage strongly in sound doctrine and refute those who would contradict. So you should expect whoever is in a pastoral leadership to know doctrine, to be able to articulate doctrine, to be able to teach the word of God clearly. They can be the nicest person in the world. They need to be able to communicate the word of God clearly. Not only that, they're not only to teach some of the Bible, they're to teach all of the Bible. Just as Paul said to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts when he was about to leave, he told the Ephesian elders, For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. You see, there are are a lot of unpopular subjects today. Unpopular because they may be controversial. Unpopular because they don't fit the mainstream. Unpopular because they may, may just rub people the wrong way because of their background or whatever it might be. But a pastor is to teach the whole counsel of God unashamedly. They're thirdly to lead and manage the church. Lead and manage the church. Just as one of the qualifications says, you know what? They need to be one who manages their own household well. Because if they can't, and they keep their own children under control because if they can't, how will one be able to manage or take care of the church? The responsibility goes beyond, you see, filling the pulpit on a Sunday, as I've seen some pastors just do or whatnot. And they're, they're to educate and they're to protect and they're to lead or manage and a whole host of other things. And they're not to do it under compulsion. Just because a person may, be, may have a... a Maybe one of the few people whom others might think might be qualified to be an elder. They're not to do it out of guilt or because those who 
who think they should serve, they serve. They shouldn't do it because they're obligated to or because the other pastors put a guilt trip on them or anything such as that. They're not to do it under compulsion. But they're to serve voluntarily according to the will of God. Because, you know, if one doesn't serve with the right motivation, you'll find that they'll burn out or they'll lose heart or they'll be a poor example or whatever it might be. So they're doing it voluntarily. And they're to do it with an attitude, secondly, of eagerness. Eagerness to serve. Not for sordid gain, but for with eagerness. There's an eagerness to serve, not for sordid gain. And the word right there means a, uh, that of, a, of, a, 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 of dishonest revenue from money that is gained. There's all sorts of religious hucksters. It's not saying that one shouldn't be paid. First Timothy tells us you shouldn't muzzle an ox while he's treading the, you know, treading the grain, etc. But it is speaking of those who are hucksters, those that you turn on the television, charlatans, false teachers, those people who, who try to see that the ministry is a place of gain financially. In fact, I just read an article this morning, a news article about a particular health, wealth, and gospel type of a preacher who says, well, you know, you ought to have faith and you ought to give more money and God will give it back to you. And he's on television and he's been uh, debunked many times as a, as a false teacher because of the uh, aberrations that he has in Christian doctrine. And yet, he here is making millions of dollars off of these false things that he purports Healings, And there are various people that, that, that huckster all of these things from holy water to amulets that you can buy. Prayer calls that if you just touch this thing, you'll be healed and it only costs you installments of $19.99 or whatever it might be. Dishonest gain is never to be the motivation. But it's to be serving with a real eagerness. One loves to serve. Loves to serve. You really want to serve. After all, remember the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. If a man desires to be an overseer, not if a man has a lot of nominations, if a man thinks that he ought to because nobody else is, if a man is well known in the community, if a man has been in the church for a long time, if a man, all of these things. No, if a man desires, it should be a heart's desire, a draw that this is what they want to do. They want to serve and they want to serve with joy. There's an eagerness to that. And a joy that comes because it's not work. Thirdly, there to be an example. An example, nor yet lording it over those allotted to their charge, but being examples. It communicates the idea of an autocratic, an oppressive, an intimidating leadership. The type of leadership that doesn't function as a team player, but functions as one who is not taking advantage of others, for example, of personal gain. The dominating type of micromanaging leadership that some may have of high control. Jesus warns against that in Matthew 20. You know, he says, in the rulers of the Gentiles in Matthew 20, 25, Lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. So, they're not to lord it over the power-hungry individual, but to serve it as an example, to be a good example in their faith, good example in their conduct, a good example in their family life. They may be very eloquent, they may be very gifted, they may be very knowledgeable, or whatever it might be, they may be very trained. They need to be an example of service to others. I remember reading in the newspaper about a, a seminary president. I realize he may technically not be an elder, but he should be, I think, because he's an example to those who's training to be an elder, so I believe that they should be. A seminary president who wound up in the paper because he had a terrible temper. He had a terrible temper. He'd, he'd blow up and then walk out on his board meetings. Somebody shouldn't be in a position such as that. And as a generality, it's a principle, uh, it's an example that can be applied to various levels of leadership. It doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that they're always going to behave in ways that are perfect. But it does mean that as a generality, they're already an example of service, of sacrifice, of what, it, of what a person should be. You don't put a person into leadership to give them a chance or because you simply want to rotate people through so that everybody will have an opportunity to have their say. Or it might encourage them in their spiritual life. It's really good for them, so we should put them in a position of leadership. No. That's never the proper motivation. That's why there are qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus. And I think it's a general application across the board. There are qualifications to positions that lead others. And it doesn't mean, again, that these people who are in positions of leadership are perfect. They may struggle, they may fall, they may trip up or whatever it might be. But no blight of their life. In general, they're examples to the flock that they lead. Why? Because Peter points out there is a reward. A reward when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, in Hebrews he is called the great shepherd. In the book of John he's called the good shepherd. One day the chief shepherd will come and all of these under shepherds will receive a reward, an unfading crown that would be of glory. There are different crowns that are mentioned, but for those... There's a crown of glory, an unfading eternal crown. And there is great reward that comes with that. The church needs leaders. The church needs godly men who won't shrink from responsibility, who will step up to the plate, people who will lead. Parents are to be people who encourage their children to lead Others, whether it's discipling women for girls or men, discipling other men, or men who will step up to the plate and be an elder. The other week I heard about a young man. I was talking with somebody about a young man that I know. I've known him for a while and he seems to be ready, willing, and able for the job. But he was asked to head up a position in, in the church to help administrate. And he's eager. He's served for a while. He seems to have been faithful. And his parents was con- were concerned because, well, they looked at others and said, well, somebody else would be better to do the job, or I see somebody else. Why in the world are they asking them? And I asked myself, well, does that parent serve? Does that parent love to serve? Well, maybe that's why, because they didn't. And in my experience, one of the most discouraging people to people who have a vision for the ministry, who desire to give themselves to God as a living sacrifice, to be a missionary, to be a pastor, some of the most discouraging people are... Parents, oh, you'll be poor, 
or you'll suffer, or oh, what a shame. Couldn't succeed in anything else. You look at them and say, oh, that's something that maybe you should think about when you get older, like after you're 50. But God is calling faithful people. Many of the movements in church history, for example, the great student missionary movement that impacted hundreds, if not thousands, thousands of lives, came from college students who became impassioned about the needs around the world. And the majority of them went off to East Asia. That was in the 20s. And now those people today are retiring. What we need is a new generation of people who will rise up and say, you know what, the baton is being passed and I need to take it up. Alexander Strzok writes in his book, Biblical Eldership, one reason, he says, there are so few shepherd elders or good church elderships is that generally speaking, men are spiritually lazy. Spiritual laziness is an enormous problem in the Christian community. Spiritual laziness is a major reason why most churches never establish a biblical eldership. Men are more than willing to let someone else fill the spiritual responsibilities, whether it be their wives, the clergy, or church professionals. Continues to say, quote, Some people say, you can't expect laymen to raise their families, work all day, and shepherd a local church. But that's simply not true. Many people raise families, work, and give substantial hours of time to community service, clubs, athletic activities, and or religious institutions. The cults have built up large lay movements that serve primarily or survive primarily because of the volunteer times of their members. We Bible-believing Christians are becoming lazy, soft, pay-for-it-to-be-done group of Christians. And it's positively amazing how much people can accomplish when they are motivated to work for something they love. He writes, I've seen people build and remodel homes in their spare time. I've seen men discipline themselves as well to gain a phenomenal knowledge of the scriptures. The real problem, he writes then, lies not in men's limited time and energy, but in false ideas about work. Christian living, life's priorities, and especially Christian ministry. How do working men shepherd the church and yet maintain family life and employment? They do it by self-sacrifice, self-discipline, faith, perseverance, hard work, and the power of the Holy Spirit, unquote. God calls to people, Especially men there who are self-disciplined, who are focused and who will have their priorities right. Who will say, if not today, then I aspire someday to be a person who will lead others in the church as an elder. To whom has been given much, much will be required. I sat down at, uh, at, at Starbucks just this past week with a friend, with a friend who is a, a missionary to Africa. And there... It's not difficult to have hundreds of pastors come together who desire to learn the Word of God and there's no one to go to teach them. No one to go to teach them and they're trying to set up these things so that these pastors know what they can do to take back to their villages to teach the people the Word of God. Do you know where they go? Do you know where those pastors go when they need a sermon? They'll turn on the television set 
And they'll look at TBN and listen to those health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers teaching them things that are false. And they'll write down their sermons and then they'll teach their people the same thing. The proliferation that television has brought. When we have been given the resources, and he was sharing with me about how it's funny because in Africa, there is an abundance of need and a lack of resources. Here in the States, it's just the opposite. There's an abundance of resources, but just a lack of desire, striving, self-discipline, those who would lead. One author writes this prayer, perhaps. God, it reads, Give us men, ribbed with the steel of your Holy Spirit, men who will not flinch when the battle's fiercest, men who won't acquiesce or compromise or fade when the enemy rages. God, give us men who can't be bought, bartered, or badgered by the enemy, men who will pay the price, make the sacrifice, stand the ground, and hold the torch high. God, give us men obsessed with the principles true to your word. Men stripped of self-seeking and a yen for security. Men who will pay any price for freedom and go any lengths for truth. God, give us men delivered from mediocrity. Men with vision high, pride low, faith wide, love deep, and patience long. Men who will dare to march to the drumbeat of a distant drummer. Men who will not surrender principles of truth in order to accommodate their peers. God give us men more interested in scars than medals. More committed to conviction than convenience. Men who will give their life for the eternal instead of indulging their lives for a moment in time. Give us men who are fearless. The face of danger, calm in the midst of pressure, bold in the midst of opposition. God, give us men who will pray earnestly, work long, preach clearly, and wait patiently. Give us men whose walk is by faith, behavior is by principle, whose dreams are in heaven, whose book is the Bible. Give us men who are equal to the task. These are the men the church needs today. Unquote. God give us men. God give us men who are not spiritually lazy, who say they have lots of time to remodel a kitchen and yet have no time to serve God, whose vision is clear and whose conviction is strong. The church of God needs people who can articulate what is true and not say, Look at so-and-so. They can do it better than I can. What a privilege it is. I've always thought that it was a privilege to serve God. Always have. I hope I always will. I hope that you will see that for your kids as well. What a privilege. Your children are called to the ministry. What a privilege it is to serve God. Someday... We will serve God forever. And what a privilege it is to serve God as an elder. Let's pray. Father, what a joy. 
the dispensation of your word, the glorious truth of the Bible, the precious life-giving water, God, raise up teachers, raise up elders. Father, may they not do it under compulsion, but may they see that it is their heartbeat. I pray, God, for many. Perhaps they have been swooning in apathy or complacency because of sin. God, pull them out of sin so that their heart might be inflamed with things that will matter for eternity, not indulging themselves in the pleasures that are here, but, Father, giving up themselves that they might be stewards, faithful stewards, for whom has been given much. Much will be required. And so, Father, you know each person's heart here. And God, I pray that they might be faithful. In Jesus' precious name, amen.